Chapter 14 of The Suffragette, The History of the Women's Militant Suffrage Movement by E. Sylvia Pankhurst. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 14. July to October 1908. Great demonstrations in the provinces. Mr. Lloyd George accuses women of being paid to interrupt him. Arrest of the three leaders and the fifth woman's parliament. Meanwhile, in spite of the fact that the Union had thought it necessary to again resort to militant tactics, the campaign of great provincial demonstrations was proceeded with, and included gatherings of 100,000 people in Shipley Glen Bradford on May 31st, 15,000 at Eaton Park, Manchester on July 19th, of 100,000 on Woodhouse Moor, Leeds on July 26th, of many thousands also on the Durden Downs Clifton near Bristol on September 19th, in Nottingham Forest on July 18th, at Huddersfield on September 27th, at Rottenstall on September 3rd, and in the Market Square, Leicester, on July 30th. During these months, by-elections had been fought in Pembrokeshire, Hagerston, and Newcastle. At the first of these, the Liberal majority was reduced. At the second, a Liberal majority of 1,401 was returned to a Conservative majority of 1,143. At Newcastle, the suffragettes swept all before them, and when Mrs. Pankhurst announced to a great meeting on the town moor that five of the released prisoners were shortly to arrive, an immense procession was formed to do them honor, and the railway authorities placed the entrance usually reserved for royalty at the disposal of the suffragettes. Almost the whole population turned out to cheer the women. There seemed no doubt the government nominee would be defeated, and so it proved for a liberal majority of no fewer than 6,481 votes was turned into a majority of 2,143 for the Conservatives. After the poll, Mr. Renwick, the successful candidate, said, I must express admiration for those who have addressed meetings on behalf of women's suffrage. They have taught us a lesson as how to speak and conduct a campaign. I am sure we all wish that they may realize their hopes. The defeated Liberal candidate also expressed the hope that the women would be voting at the next election. Meanwhile, at almost every meeting addressed by a cabinet minister throughout the length and breadth of the land, these suffragettes had been in evidence, and when they had been unable to secure admission to the halls, they had held meetings outside. At some of Mr. Lloyd George's meetings, the women hecklers were treated with special brutality, and this was certainly increased by the exclamations of the cabinet minister on the platform. He called his interrupters sorry specimens of womanhood, and added, I think a gag ought to be tried. So calculated to aggravate the already savage behavior of the stewards were his remarks, that quite a storm of protest was raised, and Mr. Lloyd George found it necessary to write to the Times, saying, Owing to the constant interruptions to which I was subjected, it was doubtless difficult for me to make myself clearly and fully understood, and the difficulty which I found in speaking was no doubt shared by the press in reporting. Under these circumstances I am not surprised that some misunderstanding may have arisen, and I appeal to the courtesy of your columns to remove it. Nevertheless, when he spoke at Swansea, his remarks were even more unguarded, and he urged on the stewards with such cries as, By and by we shall have to order sacks for them, and the first to interrupt shall disappear, and fling them ruthlessly out. At that there were shouts of laughter from liberals on the platform, mingled with cries of, Frog march them! Then he taunted the women. I wonder how much she has been paid for coming here, he called as one was being dragged away. His supporters responded with cheers and shouts of, Tory money! And he added, 
I am sorry to say this business is becoming a profession. On hearing of this remark, Mrs. Pethick Lawrence wrote to Mr. Lloyd George as treasurer of the Women's Social and Political Union to protest against his suggestion that the women who interrupted cabinet ministers did so as a profession. In doing so, she forwarded him a copy of our annual report. He replied by repeating his insinuations and calling attention to the fact that the report showed considerable sums of money to have been dispensed in salaries, traveling expenses, and special board and lodging. Mrs. Lawrence then stated, whilst, like every other political organization, the Women's Social and Political Union had its paid staff and organizers, and that whilst these organizers were occasionally present at cabinet ministers' meetings, the protests were almost entirely made by members of the union who gave their time and work freely. Thus, of the thirty women who had interrupted Mr. George at the Queen's Hall on July 28th and had been ejected, twenty-nine had never at any time been in receipt of any salary from the Union, and of the five women who had taken part in the protest made at Swansea, four had never been in receipt of any salary from the Union, and the fifth was not receiving any salary at the time. The eyes of all suffragettes were now fixed upon the opening of Parliament for the autumn session, which was to take place on October 12th. The Prime Minister was again asked that facilities should be given for the House of Commons to proceed with the Women's Enfranchisement Bill, but he again refused, and the WSPU then determined that a fifth Parliament of Women must be called together on October 13th, and that a deputation from it must again seek an interview with the Prime Minister. It was thought desirable that, as on the last occasion, the general public should be present, both that they might see what actually happened between the women and the authorities, and also that it might be shown to the government that many thousands of men and women were prepared to support the suffragettes and to answer to their call. Knowing well the difficulty of bringing anything prominently before the public in these modern days of crowded interests, except with the aid the advertisement afforded by notices in the press, and knowing also that in this epoch of press sensationalism that nothing, even if it be as serious as a struggle between life and death, is reported except when it is new, the committee of the Union cast about in their minds for some racy and attractive means of drawing public attention to the forthcoming deputation. At last the phrase, Help the suffragettes to rush the House of Commons, was hit upon, because of its double suggestion and echo of the oft-heard, but almost always ridiculously unfounded complaint, that legislation is being rushed through our too talkative and dilatory Parliament. The words were at once embodied in a handbill of which the accompanying illustration is a facsimile. Meanwhile, another body of agitators who had become impatient with the government's treatment of their own particular question were preparing to take similar steps. Even in the early summer there had been signs that the forthcoming winter was to be one of exceptional hardship for the working classes, and the Labour members of Parliament had then begun to urge upon the President of the Local Government Board the need for making extensive preparations for helping the great number of persons whom they foresaw would fall out of employment. The distress that had been foreshadowed was now upon the country, a feeling of general discontent prevailed, and rumours of all sorts of wild doings were beginning to spread. Bodies of unemployed came marching up to London from the provincial towns and held meetings on the Embankment and Tower Hill, at which it was announced that there was to be a great gathering of the unemployed in Parliament Square on Monday, October 12th, and that an attempt was then to be made to see the Prime Minister, the President of the Local Government Board and the President of the Board of Trade. On Sunday, October 4th, a meeting for the unemployed was held under the auspices of the Social Democratic Federation in Trafalgar Square, and some very inflammatory speeches were delivered. Note 29. 
the words of Mr. Will Thorne, M.P. for West Ham, were milder than those of some others. In the course of his remarks, he said, Next Tuesday the suffragettes admit that they are going to rush the house. There is nothing there. If you want to rush anything, you rush where there is something to be rushed, not the house. I say that if you are in earnest, the first thing that you ought to do is to rush the baker's shops. You ought to rush every bally baker's shop in London rather than starve. I suppose it means that a few of you will get locked up. You would be better off in prison. He added that until the unemployed struck the fear of man into the hearts of the government, the government would do nothing for them. After the unemployed meeting was over, there was some disorder in the neighborhood of Charing Cross, and two or three men were arrested. On Sunday, October 11th, the Women's Social and Political Union held a meeting in Trafalgar Square at which Mrs. Pankhurst, Christabel Pankhurst, and Mrs. Drummond spoke from the plinth of the Nelson Column, whilst the police who were present in great numbers took notes of all that was said. On Monday, October 12th, came the day of the unemployed demonstration, but though much had been feared and expected of it, little happened. Small groups of unemployed began to arrive in the square at an early hour, but a pacificatory attitude was adopted by the authorities, and though the police kept the crowd moving in the thoroughfares, they did not prevent the assemblage of a number of people in the centre of the green in front of Westminster Abbey. Many of the men were allowed to enter the house, where Mr. John Burns assured them that within a few days the Prime Minister would make a pronouncement in the House of Commons pledging the government to provide some measure of relief. During the week that had passed, the last before their demonstration, the suffragettes had been working strenuously. The rush handbills had been circulated broadcast, a votes for women kite had floated constantly over the House of Commons, and a steam launch decorated with banners and posters announcing the deputation had steamed up and down the river. Everything had gone on without let or hindrance, and new recruits anxious to take part in the demonstration had been eagerly presenting themselves. Yet from day to day there grew the knowledge that the authorities were lying in wait to take some sudden step against the Union, and the women began to notice that the police were shadowing all the prominent members of the committee and were constantly hanging about the offices at Clements Inn. The blow came in the shape of the following document, a copy of which was served upon Mrs. Pankhurst, Mrs. Drummond, and Christabel Pankhurst about midday on Monday, October 12th. Information has been laid this day by the Commissioner of Police for that you, in the month of October, in the year 1908, were guilty of conduct likely to provoke a breach of the peace by initiating and causing to be initiated, by publishing and causing to be published, a certain handbill, calling upon and inciting the public to do a certain wrongful and illegal act, viz., to rush the House of Commons at 7.30 p.m. on October 13th instant. You are therefore hereby summoned to appear before the Court of Summary Jurisdiction now sitting at the Bow Street Police Station on Monday, October 12th at the hour of 3.30 to answer to the said information and to shew cause why you and each of you shall not be ordered to find sureties of good behavior. Signed, H. Curtis Bennett. It was felt that the summons had been issued to withdraw public attention from the deputation to Mr. Asquith which was to go from the Caxton Hall next evening. Therefore it was decided to disregard it for the present, but at the crowded at home in the Queen's Hall that afternoon the members of the Union were informed that it had been received. The devotion and loyalty to leaders always so strong in the Union was now at fever heat. Numbers of constables were posted at the doors, official police reporters were present, and it was momentarily expected that the police would force their way on to the platform and arrest the three. The excitement culminated when someone said that a police inspector was entering the building, 
Then hundreds of women leapt to their feet and cried out that the officers should not be allowed to enter and that they would never let them take their leaders. But this proved to be a false alarm, for it was only a messenger to say that the summonses had been adjourned until the following morning. Mrs. Pankhurst, Christabel, and Mrs. Drummond decided not to give themselves up till evening, and they accordingly sent the following note to the court. We shall not be at the offices at four, Clement's Inn, until six o'clock today, but at that hour we shall all three be entirely at your disposal. This did not appease the authorities in any way, and a warrant for their arrest was immediately issued, with an order to Inspector Jarvis to execute it without delay. Having guessed that this might happen, Mrs. Drummond had quietly arranged to spend her last day of liberty with friends, whilst my mother and sister had merely made their way to one of the upper flats in Clement's Inn, number 119, which was rented by Mr. and Mrs. Pethick Lawrence, and to which a roof garden was attached. This had scarcely been done when the police swooped down upon our offices to demand the three, and on no information being forthcoming, they remained roaming about the passages and standing in the doorways, trying to get information from postmen, porters, and tradesmen all day long. At six o'clock, Mrs. Drummond returned, promptly to the moment, and the two other prisoners walked calmly downstairs and into the offices. Inspector Jarvis and a detective in plain clothes were already waiting and, after the warrant for their arrest had been read out to them, they were taken in a cab to Bow Street. The court having risen, it was impossible for the trial to be proceeded with that evening, and when they applied to be allowed out on bail until the next morning, their application was refused and they were hurried away to the cells. The police court cells are about five feet wide by seven feet long, exceedingly badly lit, and furnished only with a wooden bench attached to the wall and a sanitary convenience. There are neither washing utensils nor bed of any kind, but each prisoner is given a dark and dirty-looking rug in which to wrap herself during the night. Mrs. Pankhurst at once claimed her right as an untried prisoner to communicate with the outside world, and immediately dispatched telegrams to several members of Parliament. A weary hour or two went by. Then the door of Mrs. Pankhurst's cell was thrown wide open, and the tall, breezy presence of Mr. Murray, Liberal Member of Parliament for East Aberdeenshire, appeared. He was horrified to find the three ladies in these unpleasant surroundings, and promising to return soon, he hurried to the Savoy Hotel, and there arranged for various comforts to be sent in to the prison. Then he prevailed upon the authorities to allow the three suffragettes to take their evening meal together, and in an incredibly short space of time they were ushered into the matron's room. The bare little place with its dingy walls, its wooden chairs, and two deal tables had been wonderfully transformed. Numbers of tall wax candles had been lighted, the tables were laid with silver, flowers and brightly colored fruit, and three waiters were ready to serve the prisoners with a most elaborate meal. At the same time, Mr. Murray, with his face wreathed in smiles, was superintending the carrying into the cells of three comfortable beds. The management of the Savoy had thrown themselves into the enterprise with the greatest eagerness, and having acted throughout with almost overwhelming kindness and courtesy, ended by refusing to charge anything at all for what they had provided. As well may be imagined, the three comrades were in no haste to finish the meal and return to the dark and solitary cells. Meanwhile there were stirring doings at Westminster. All police had been stopped for the day in the whole of the metropolitan area, and every mounted policeman had been called up to headquarters. Parliament Square itself was cut off from the rest of London, as though it were in a state of siege, by double cordons of foot police, each of them five feet deep, which were drawn up across all the streets leading to it. 
Within these barriers the great area, usually thronged with vehicles of all kinds and hurrying passers-by, was emptied of all but the few mounted police who rode about in it, the ring of their horses' hoofs sounding strangely sharp and loud, and an occasional wheeled vehicle carrying some member to the House of Commons. Outside the massed ranks of police the whole population of London seemed to have gathered. The newspapers said that it was just like mafficking night without the disorder. Members of Parliament came out from time to time to watch the scene, amongst the spectators being Mr. John Burns, Mr. Haldane, Mr. Walter Long, and Mr. Lloyd George, who came with his little daughter, a fair-haired child of six years old. Soon a deputation of eleven women with Miss Wallace Dunlop, a descendant of the great William Wallace, as their leader, marched out of the Caxon Hall, with Mrs. Lawrence's instructions, to oppose with spiritual force the physical force which the authorities had arrayed in such strength against them, ringing in their ears. A cheer from the waiting crowd greeted them as they gained the street, and though some fifty constables attempted to bar their passage into Victoria Street, the people swept them through. At last, near the end of Victoria Street, they were met by a body of police, and the inspector in charge asked Miss Wallace Dunlop that the deputation should wait for a few moments in order that he might bring up some mounted police to clear away to the House of Commons. She agreed to wait until eight o'clock, but when that time came, the inspector returned and said the deputation could not pass. Then, faithful to their trust, the little band of women pressed bravely forward and commenced their hopelessly unequal struggle with the police. In a moment their ranks were broken, and they were scattered hopelessly amongst the crowd of constables and sightseers. Before long a number had been arrested, and the others were swept far away from their destination. When the news of the first deputation's fate reached the Caxton Hall, a second body of women numbering some thirty or forty marched out to take their place. Like their predecessors, they too reached the top of Victoria Street where the mounted police were still waiting. Then suddenly Mrs. Lee, a slight agile figure in white, dashed forward from their midst and threw herself into the mounted line, seizing a police horse by the bridle with either hand. The horses reared and kicked furiously, the constables closed upon her, and she was flung to the ground. From time to time several isolated women succeeded, by strategy in getting quite close to the House of Commons, and one even found her way into one of the underground passages used by members of Parliament. In every case they were captured by the police and either placed under arrest or dragged away and pushed outside the guarding cordons into the crowd. At last, so fearful did the authorities become that the women might be concealed at other strategic points that they proceeded to thoroughly search every corner of Westminster Abbey, and with their lanterns were to be seen amongst the buttresses and pinnacles of St. Margaret's Church searching for suffragettes. Yet with all their vigilance they were circumvented, for one woman succeeded in outwitting everyone and entered the sacred chamber itself. The lady in question was Mrs. Margaret Travers Simmons, Mr. Keir Hardy's parliamentary secretary, who, whilst a believer in the Votes for Women movement, had never taken any active part in it. On her way to the house that evening she had been deeply moved by the violent scenes. As she sat thinking of them in the lobby and realizing that the suffragettes, struggle as they might, would never reach the house, the thought suddenly flashed across her mind that she herself had the power to make the appeal and protest which was impossible to them. Seized by an irresistible impulse, she sent in for Mr. T. H. W. Idris, the Liberal member for Flint Boroughs, and asked him to take her to look through a little window, known as the peephole, which is situated on the left side of the glass doors leading into the House of Commons, and to which members of Parliament had the privilege of taking their lady friends. He agreed, and on reaching the window, she mounted a seat which is in front of it in order that she might get a clear view of the chamber.
After a moment or two she descended, and Mr. Idris turned towards the outer lobby thinking that she was about to accompany him. In that instant she pushed open the double glass doors and, before anyone could prevent her, darted into the chamber and rushed up to the central aisle, towards the speaker's chair, calling upon the house to attend to the woman's question. She was seized by one of the attendants at the bar, a big powerful man who carried her back into the lobby, and in a very short space of time she had been handed over to a police inspector, conducted out of the House of Commons, and allowed to go free. Outside in the street, the conflict still continued and went on until midnight when it was found that ten persons had been injured and treated at Westminster Hospital, and that twenty-one women and a number of men had been arrested. Footnotes 29. My authorities in these cases are the report in the Times and the evidence given in the witness box at Bow Street. End of chapter 14